Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Digital Dust Podcast. It's Liz here, and it's only Liz today. Um, this past, what, two weeks have not going as planned. I feel like everyone is just super busy. I feel like as soon as, at least up here in Canada, like as soon as the spring starts and it starts to get nice out, everyone's plans just like skyrocket, and then we're all super busy. So... Instead of having four of us or three of us, I volunteered myself to speak into a microphone all alone, and hopefully you guys are cool with it. Um, But I'm really excited, so I don't know if you guys know this about me. Obviously, I'm a podcast girly. I mean, I'm assuming you are all podcast girlies as well. But I'm also a huge true crime girly, and... It's probably not very good for me. My partner has actually been away for like a week. He comes back in a couple, not even a couple days. I think it's still like another week, honestly. He's currently living his best life in Japan right now. That's a whole other story. Um, So it really doesn't help that I'm like sitting alone in my room with the door closed (laughs) with no one home telling you guys true crime spooky stories. But I love it, even if it makes me think that, like, everyone's a horrible person. Luckily, this one happened way in the past, and it's actually one that I hadn't really heard much about before. So I figured, all right, what am I going to do for a solo episode? I figured you guys probably some semblance like true crime, at the very least a really good historic true crime story. So I'm going to dive right in and... Uh, yeah, this is True Crime Time with Liz. And if you like this, let us know. Uh, you can DM us on Instagram or TikTok. You can email us, uh, reach us through our website. It'll all be in the show notes below. But definitely let us know if you like True Crime uh, and would like True Crime Time with Liz to be a continuing kind of reoccurring little special that we do. Even if it's not, like, in the, like, show itself. Like, I could just do, like, these a couple one-off a year or, like, a season. It'd be kind of fun. So let me know what you think. True crime with a historical spin. But without further ado, we are going to get into this spooky story. This is the chilling case of Amelia Dyer, the Victorian baby farmer and the ogress of reading. Reading? Reading? I need Katie here to tell me how to pronounce it as a Brit. But before I get in, I just want to do a trigger warning for the episode. This episode will discuss child abuse, neglect, murder. Uh, It's pretty grim. And if that is just not your vibe, if that's not something that you want to hear about, no worries. Just don't listen to this episode because honestly, I don't really think there are any good parts per se. Um, So I would just maybe take a break, go listen to something a little bit lighter and come back in two weeks for our next episode. Okay, take care of yourselves, everyone. Even if you are listening, please take care of yourselves. But this story truly incredible. Again, I'd never heard of it before, and I'm really surprised I hadn't. 
This is the story of a Victorian-era nurse turned serial killer who some believe killed upwards of 200 to 400 children and infants in her care over a 30-year period. Dyer's story is not only a fascinating true crime tale, it also provides a rare look into one of the strangest practices of the 19th century known as baby farming. So we'll get a little bit more into what baby farming is exactly in a little bit. And obviously we are in the Victorian era, so there are far more strange things happening. This is just one of those crazy Victorian things that happened that don't even sound real. Um, that we don't really hear too much about. And the story is all about farming babies, basically. So Amelia Dyer was born in 1837. She was the youngest of five children born in a small village of Pyle Marsh, east of Bristol in England. She was the daughter of a master shoemaker, which meant that her family was fairly like middle class, fairly affluent. So she was very lucky to be able to taught to read and write at a young age. And she actually even developed a real love of literature and poetry as a child. Her childhood went from typical you know, pretty happy to com a complete nightmare overnight when her mother became severely mentally ill, which was actually caused, um, it was a side effect of her experience with typhus, which is very interesting. I didn't know that that actually happened with a lot of people who survived typhus. So her mother had violent outbursts while Emilio had to take care of her until her death in 1848. Amelia's mother's death was far from the first tragic moment in Amelia's life. Uh, her elder sister, Sarah Ann, died in 1841 when she was just six years old. And four years later, her other younger sister, uh, who was also named Sarah Ann, died as an infant. After Amelia's mother's death, Amelia lived with her aunt in Bristol before taking an apprenticeship with a corset maker. Around this time, her father also died, leaving the shoe business to her elder brother, Thomas. In 1861, 24-year-old Amelia became estranged from her surviving family members, moving to Bristol where she married George Thomas. George wasn't your average groom. <laughs> like I said, Amelia was 24 and he was 59 years old, so 35 years her senior. So both he and Amelia actually lied about their ages on the marriage certificate to reduce the age gap and make it look less suspicious. Not really sure why she married him, probably mostly for financial stability, but maybe it was for love. Who knows? Can't judge her. Well, we can judge her actually. <laughs> so after her marriage to George Thomas, Amelia actually trained as a nurse, but soon found an even easier way to make a living. A midwife actually told Amelia about a loophole that would allow her to make even more money without even leaving her house, allowing young women who had conceived children illegitimately to stay with her and then farm, quote unquote farm, the babies for money through adoption, only to let the babies die from neglect and malnutrition. So how it would work is there would be someone pregnant who does not want to be pregnant, or at least not does not want to take care of the child or cannot take care of the child. She would give them a home and kind of take care of them until they gave birth. And then at that time, once they gave birth, they would go keep working, whatever else, while Amelia would stay and seemingly take care of their child. And this kind of ranged uh, in like relationships from, you know, young women who actually wanted a relationship with their child, but just 
didn't have the means to take care of them at the moment. So they would um, want to visit from time to time, that kind of thing. Two women who literally just wanted it over and wanted to move on and never actually intended on seeing the child. So essentially just kind of formally adopting them. Um, and typically uh, they would usually pay money to Amelia, whether it was kind of like a weekly or a monthly uh, fee or a one-time kind of larger substantial fee. So how is this practice even allowed to happen? It all has to do with, with a ridiculous law that was passed in 1834. It was called the Poor Law Amendment Act. This law removed any financial obligation from men who fathered illegitimate children. Sounds like an interesting law passed by men for men <laughs> that literally helped no one. So this combined with uh, life in a society where single parenthood and illegitimacy were heavily stigmatized led to many women having to participate in baby farming, where people like Dyer would adopt and foster illegitimate children in exchange for money. Um, and typically these baby farms were designed to take in women, like I said, provide care during the pregnancy. Uh, and then what they would do is nurse the children uh, by like, you know, feeding them, taking care of them, all that kind of stuff. Depending on one's background, this business could be extremely profitable. So, for example, blackmail was often used to kind of drive the fees even higher if the parents were well off. So kind of threatening to oust them for having an illegitimate child. Um, however, the majority of women who paid for the services of baby farmers were very poor. So in order to make farming, baby farming profitable, many nurses, again, quote unquote, they were called nurses, neglected and underfed the babies to save money. Noisy babies, who were usually crying from being hungry, were often sedated with alcohol or opiates, which were actually widely available in cough syrups that were marketed for children. So a lot of the times this unfortunately led to death from opioid overdoses or from malnutrition and starvation. Um, but this also brought about a lot of opioid addiction in children as well. So not only would they be crying because they're hungry, but then they would also be crying because of a kind of burgeoning dependency on opioids. So things like laudanum, for example, had opium in them. Um, many children's medicines had kind of a like concoction of alcohol and opium and other things to basically just conk them out instead of actually helping them in any way. So Amelia ended up leaving her nursing job uh, when her daughter Ellen was born. And in 1869, her elderly husband died, leaving Amelia with nothing to do, nothing to support her family with. So soon after that, after his death in 1869, Amelia had to turn to baby farming. Well, she didn't have to turn to it, but that's what she decided to do. So Dyer began advertising her quote unquote baby care services in newspapers and that kind of thing. So she advertised that for a large one-time payment, which was typically around like 10 pounds or so, um, which was a lot at the time, and enough clothing for the child, Dyer would adopt the baby and care for it. In her advertisements, she assured clients that she was a respectable woman who would provide a safe and loving home for the child, but it was actually a house of horrors. In 1872, Amelia married William Dyer. Uh, that's where she gets her actual name now. 
Um, they had two children together, Mary Ann and William Samuel, before Amelia ultimately left William. All the while, she was still adopting babies and neglecting them to the point of death to profit. Soon, she did away with the expense and effort of even letting the children die of starvation and instead turned to killing the infants as soon as she received them, allowing her to keep nearly all of the hefty fee that she charged because she didn't have to spend it on food and all that kind of stuff, which is just crazy to me. Um, so not only was she, you know, doing this to save money, but it also drastically kind of sped up her cycle uh, of how she got victims and kind of used them and that kind of thing. And that's how we end up with that 200 to 400 number, which is just insane. So all the while she was evading the interests of the police. So oftentimes doctors would be by to sign death certificates and that kind of thing. And it doesn't take very long with a lot of dead babies to get people to start to wonder what exactly is going on. And this is purely from a kind of criminal standpoint. Unfortunately, at this time, there weren't many laws in place that protected children and infants in terms of their kind of care. Um, so for example, nowadays with foster homes and adoption situations, like there's a lot more vetting that goes on through the process. There's a lot more supervision. All of it is government regulated. None of this existed around this time. This case did actually help to kind of bring about some of those laws. But at the time, you could do whatever you want with your child and there wasn't really much the law could do about it. Uh, minus the whole, you know, purposefully starving them and killing them. So once she kind of piqued the interest of the cops, she was actually charged with a um, with like child neglect, basically, and was sentenced to only six months of hard labor. That's not very much. So after she served her sentence, she actually tried to resume her nursing career, uh, but increased outbursts due to mental instability and her suicidal tendencies often left her as an inmate in mental asylums instead of working. Um, but she wasn't actually mentally ill. She was actually kind of smart. Um, so as a former asylum nurse, someone who worked in asylums, she actually knew how to properly behave to ensure that she could be committed. And this was because when those doctors, policemen started, you know, really nosing around, seeing what she was doing, starting to gather some evidence, she would very conveniently have a mental breakdown and then be admitted into an asylum. She also knew that she would have access to, you know, food, a place to sleep, and she'd occasionally have some, again, fun opium-based medicines to abuse to pass the time. So really, she was either baby farming to kind of make a living, or she was actually like living it up in some of these asylums where she was fed and all these other things for like no cost. So in 1890, Dyer was caring for the illegitimate baby of a governess. When the governess returned to visit the baby, she actually felt like something was off. So she went and she actually stripped the baby down looking for a birthmark. And when the birthmark wasn't there, <laughs> uh, she became very suspicious of Dyer. And Dyer subsequently, again, faked a breakdown to be placed into an asylum and lay low from the authorities. So once she was released from the, the asylum, her second stay, 
uh, she once again returned to baby farming. Realizing the risk of involving doctors to issue death certificates, Dyer began disposing of the bodies herself. And Dyer and her family also frequently had to move all around to evade the police as well. Which, again, wasn't too hard when you consider the size of the London area and other kind of boroughs throughout England. Um, everything was fairly central, but you could move around to all these different jurisdictions and basically avoid capture or kind of triggering any sort of police interest. So in 1893, Dyer was discharged from yet another uh, asylum. This is the Somerset and Bath Lunatic Asylum. But apparently here that the conditions were so poor, she never faked ill again. She never stepped foot in asylum again. So I don't know what kind of horrific things were going on there. If even she was saying she would never go back for whatever reason, she decided not to fake mentally ill anymore uh, and just kind of evade police capture as long as possible. So in 1896, this is three years after she was released from that final asylum, a 25-year-old barmaid named Evelina Marmon gave birth to an illegitimate daughter named Doris. Evelina actually placed ads in the newspaper looking for someone to adopt her daughter uh, while she was able to return to work to earn enough money so that she could then kind of come reclaim her daughter. They could live together, but for the meantime, she needed to make some money. Uh, this was actually quite common to actually advertise this. Again, like there wasn't anything wrong with it at the time. Um, so that was just something typical that people did. And coincidentally, right next to Marmon's ad in the newspaper was another ad from a Mrs. Harding, which read, married couple with no family would adopt a healthy child in a nice country home. Terms, 10 pounds. So, again, she's, she's asking for 10 pounds up front uh, in order to care for the child. Marmon decided to reply to the ad that, quote, Mrs. Harding put in the paper. Uh, and Mrs. Harding, who's actually Dyer, wrote, uh, wrote back to her that she would be glad to have a dear baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own. We are plain, homely people in fairly good circumstances. I don't want a child for money's sake, but the company and home comfort. I and my husband are dearly fond of children. I have no child of my own. A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love. So it wasn't like she was kind of not being forthcoming about the way that she was planning on treating these children. Uh, she very methodically sought these children out only to abuse and neglect them and murder them. So this reply is a great example of that. Um, and basically none of these are true. Don't want a child for money's sake? That's a lie. Uh, home comfort even? That's, that's a lie too. I'm sure, I'm pretty sure that her home from what I've read, was an absolute pigsty, rightfully so. Even if you, you know, having multiple children there at once, not making very much money, all of these kinds of things. Um, so yeah, so it's really sad that Marmon was kind of convinced that this would be a really great home for her daughter. And so she forked over the 10 pounds, a box of clothing and her baby daughter, Doris, and handed her to who she did not know was Amelia Dyer. And a few days later, she received a letter from Mrs. Harding saying that all was well. Again, Mrs. Harding is dire. And when Marmon wrote back, she never replied. 
Dyer told Marmon that she was traveling to reading with baby Doris, but instead she was actually went to London where her daughter Polly was living. There, Dyer found some white edging tape that was used in sewing and dressmaking and wound it twice around the baby's neck before tying a knot. It was a very cruel and very slow way to kill someone, especially a child. And that was actually her preferred method was that white edging tape. Dyer later said that she actually liked to watch them with the tape around their neck, but it was soon all over with them. So basically she said it didn't really last very long and she wish it would. Um, Polly and Amelia then wrapped the baby's body in a napkin, which is horrific to hear that because it's like, that's how small that baby was. And then sold her clothes to a pawnbroker. And the next day, another child named Harry Simmons, who was about one year old, was also taken in by the Dyer women. And because she didn't have any spare edging tape to use, uh, um, Amelia actually took the tape from Doris's corpse and used it to strangle Harry as well. And then both of their bodies were put into a carpet bag along with bricks, and she threw that bag into the Thames River never to be seen again. Actually, maybe not, but we'll get to that. So this was a very normal procedure for Amelia at this point. Obtain the baby, kind of make sure that everything looks normal and that the mother is, you know, kind of playing along and soon after get rid of them so you don't have to feed them or clothe them or take care of them and dispose of the bodies. Typically, into uh, a body of water like the Thames and other rivers uh, and body what bodies of water kind of around there. It's like the n- number one reason out of like a hundred why we should never ever ever go in or drink water from the Thames. It's disgusting. Unfortunately, here in London, Ontario, the Thames River, which we actually have, is also pretty disgusting. So it's too bad. So, unbeknownst to Dyer. Around the same time that the deaths of Harry Simmons and Doris Marmon had just uh, occurred, a package was actually retrieved from the river by a bargeman. And when he opened it, it had the body of a baby girl, which was later identified as Helena Fry. And using, it's actually really cool, I didn't know that they did this in the Victorian era, but using microscopic analysis of the wrapping paper used on the package, a detective constable named Constable Anderson was able to find a faintly legible name, which said Mrs. Thomas and an address. The evidence then led the police to none other than Amelia Dyer, though they had little evidence to actually convict her. So instead, they actually placed her home under surveillance. Which old timey surveillance just means like, I guess, just like hanging out outside the house and seeing what goes on. So eventually they decided to employ a decoy. This is very smart of them, actually, to pretend to seek Dyer's services, hoping to prove her illicit business activities. So on April 3rd, 1896, police actually raided Dyer's home as soon as that decoy was able to gain entry before they were able to actually like hand over a baby. And as soon as they entered the home, which stank of human decomposition, although there were no remains found, they found white edging tape, 
telegrams about adoption arrangements, pawn tickets for children's clothes, and many, many letters from concerned mothers uh, who were asking about the well-being of their children. So pretty, pretty damning evidence. The police calculated that in a, just a few months, Dyer had killed at least 20 children in her care. So if this math is correct, this means that over the many decades, about three decades, she worked as a baby farmer, Dyer had killed over 400 babies and children, making her one of the most prolific murderers ever in history. Dyer was arrested and charged with murder. While she sat in jail, the authorities actually dredged the Thames and discovered six more bodies, including the body of Doris Marmon and the body of Harry Simmons. Each baby that they found had been strangled with that same white tape, which Dyer later told police was how you could tell it was one of mine. On May 22nd, 1896, Dyer appeared at the Old Bailey in London and pleaded guilty to the murder of Doris Marmon. Her own daughter, Mary Ann, even provided graphic evidence which sealed her own mother's fate. Dyer tried to use the insanity defense, of course, uh, to get out of, not get out of jail free, but to kind of lessen her sentence and get her sent away to another asylum. And because she already had a history with asylums, she was hoping that this, you know, kind of defense would be very easily granted to her. But it didn't take long for the prosecution to actually successfully argue that Amelia had been faking her mental mental instability all along by kind of corresponding other police investigations around her suspicious activities around baby farming with the times that she magically ended up in asylums. So it took a jury four and a half minutes that's it. Four and a half minutes to find Amelia Dyer guilty of murder. And again, this is only for one murder. It's really horrible that you, we never got justice for the 399 other children that likely died at the hands of this horrific woman. But while she was awaiting her execution, Dyer actually filled out five booklets which what, with what she calls her last true and only confession. Uh, I tried to find these booklets somewhere or like a, uh, like a transposed version of them. I don't think they ever made it out. Couldn't find anything about it, which is too bad. So Dyer was actually hanged at Newgate Prison on Wednesday, June 10th, 1896, when she stood on the platform right before they, you know, pulled the lever. Uh, she was asked if she had any last words, which, with which she replied, I have nothing to say. Sounds about right. While the case of Amelia Dyer actually helped to tighten adoption laws around this time, the practice of baby farming still continued. So it really wasn't until the turn of the century that stricter laws allowing government regulation of adoption and of foster homes that baby farms ultimately faded from history. Um, although there are some really interesting uh, stories um, kind of throughout. Obviously, baby farms happened quite often. Amelia Dyer is probably one of the worst, probably the most notorious, but there were many, many people doing the same thing. Likely not around the same scale as this, um, but some were even, you know, taking advantage of welfare, that kind of thing, or just kind of the prolonged taking of money 
while neglecting these children rather than actually taking care of them. But typically they didn't go as far to kill them um, like Amelia did. But this even happened up into, in some cases in the 40s and 50s, I believe it's Joan Crawford. She adopted quite a few children and it was also rumored that those children were from like a baby farm where it was just kind of an orphanage um, that kind of created these like beautiful children to be adopted purely by celebrities and again didn't treat them very well um, but then kind of were able to get more publicity by adopting them out to Hollywood stars like Joan Crawford. So like I said around the turn of the century the actual kind of practice of baby farming as it is laid out in this episode pretty much ended um, but the abuse of adoption and, and foster care for acne children and infants still continues today and continued throughout history. In the 1960s and 70s, for example, there was thousands of West African children that were privately fostered by white families in the United Kingdom, uh, which was also a phenomenon known as farming. And the biological parents were usually students in the UK who also had a job. So again, they were um, parents who immigrated from West Africa got pregnant, couldn't afford to keep their baby, and they would kind of adopt them out. Um, and they also place ads in newspapers uh, for looking for foster families to take care of their children. I don't think, again, that like abuse and neglect happened as extremely as it did in the Victorian era, but you can imagine a white family in the 60s would probably not be the most welcoming to a child of West African descent, which is really unfortunate. And actually, I also have kind of a connection to this whole phenomena of baby farming and kind of the the exploitation of the adoption and foster care system uh, throughout history. My great grandfather, uh, he was also kind of a victim. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily call it baby farming at the time, but he was one of over 100,000 children who were sent from the UK to Canada between 1869 and 1932. And this was called, they were called home children essentially, but they were also called Bernardo boys. Bernardo's is a, I believe still around, founded in 1866, a children's charity. And they were one of the most prolific people uh, or organizations who rounded up these kids and sent them overseas to Canada. Uh, it's quite an interesting part of Canadian history. Um, so these kids, again, they were called home children uh, because most of what they did was ship them overseas, literally like hundreds of children at a time, all alone, no parents. They typically didn't have parents or didn't have parents who were very well off. For example, from what I have been able to find about my great grandfather, uh, he only, we don't know his mother. He only had a father and his name was Ted. That's all I know. Ted Edwards. Um, I haven't been able to find much else through Ancestry or other records. The government of Canada does have um, immigration records for all of the home children that kind of entered Canada through this time and they have a whole collection dedicated to that which is really cool. Um, but my guess is that either his father died or fell upon some really not great circumstances. Uh, the mother probably died in childbirth or left very early on and his only choice was to surrender him and have him become a home child. 
So my great-grandfather, his name was Albert, he remembered arriving in Canada and being sent uh, to kind of northern Ontario, and which is where most of them were. They were usually sent to rural places in rural Canada where they could kind of be helping um, families who were not as well off or families who needed assistance on farms, things like that. And that's exactly what my great-grandfather did, but he actually recalled being treated horribly. Um, his adopted parents were cruel and barely took care of them. They had children of their own, too. He was honestly treated more like a farmhand or like a servant uh, and free labor, as opposed to an actual child that was in a very strange place with no one they knew and nothing familiar or comfortable and no love. Uh, and of course, this story is even more familiar with the also thousands of children in Canada that were taken from their homes, uh, Indigenous children who were taken from their homes and put into residential schools, often to be mistreated, abused, neglected, starved, uh, and ultimately killed. Um, which is exactly what happened with Dyer. It's exactly what happened throughout the whole baby farming thing in the Victorian era. And it happened in Canada as well. And it happened up until the 1980s and 90s is when the last residential school closed. So while this story is incredibly interesting, Dyer's story that is, is incredibly interesting to hear about. And, you know, it's a really interesting true crime story, this kind of woman's motivations and things. It is also really sad to think that this isn't a one-off horrible person who did horrible things. Like this was just one person who took advantage of this pre-existing system of abusing and neglecting children who maybe weren't wanted or who didn't come from affluent backgrounds. It's very interesting because even though Amelia struggled quite a fair bit as a child, she did come from actually a pretty affluent background, or at least for at the time they were comfortable. She was able to get an education, take on an apprenticeship, become a nurse, all of those things uh, are very privileged. So it's very interesting that she found herself in a situation where she was taking advantage of women who did not have the same upbringing as her and who were not of the same background as her. So I'm very glad, honestly. I'm not a huge fan of the uh, um, death sentence, but I think for what this was, I, I think it was probably good because there's absolutely no way that that woman wouldn't have returned to what she was doing and, and hurt how many other, you know, hundreds of children. So <laughs> this that's my story, basically. Um... I didn't want it to be as sad as it is. It is a sad one. Um, but it's also interesting and it's a really interesting way to look at history and look at how we've kind of been able to interpret a lot of these stories as kind of these one-offs or these kind of villains, inhumane people, while still kind of completely looking over our shoulders at what's actually going on and how this has continued for so long and how we've allowed it to continue and we allowed these circumstances to happen. Um, and we still see the repercussions of it today. We still see the horrific kind of emotional and physical scars that, um, and generational scars that residential schools in Canada, and they also happen in the US as well, 
what those have left. Um, my great-grandfather isn't with us. I never got to meet him, but I would imagine he also had would probably have had a lot to say about his upbringing as a, as a home child and, and what that kind of alienation from his home and from a loving parent did. So that is the story of Amelia Dyer. I will leave another couple books and sources below. If you are more interested in this story, we can definitely, um, you can definitely take a look there and probably get a more in-depth look at the story as well. And let me know if you enjoyed our little true crime chat. Um, if you'd like to keep doing this, let me know. I can definitely pick not like a happier one, but maybe a less, um, like systemic one <laughs> next time, uh, especially, you know, historic ones that you haven't heard, or if you would like a historical take on more popular ones, for example, we could do Jack the Ripper. Fun fact, Amelia Dyer actually was considered as Jack the Ripper at one point, but that literally makes no sense because their MOs were completely different. Um, but how ironic would that have been that Jack the Ripper is actually a woman? It's very interesting. Um, but anyway, so yeah, let me know uh, if you guys have any other historic true crime stories that you want to hear. And yeah, with that, I will see you on the flippity flop. Digital Dust is recorded on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapawak, and Attawandaran peoples, on lands connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be home to First Nations peoples, Métis people, and Inuit people, whom we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingen, and Robin Marshall. Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards. Audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. Our theme music is by Mattias Miller.